Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's the podcast where Hank Green pretends to have way more energy than he actually does and we, bring, <laughs> we answer your questions and give you dubious advice and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, yes. you know, I'm a science guy and I recently learned that the doctor hits you with that little hammer on your knee. There's no reason they even do that. They just get a kick out of it. <laughs> I mean, there there is a reason. There is there is a reason. I don't know what it is either, but there is a reason. It's, I assume it's, doctor it's stuff. It's to test the the speed of of reflexes, right? To make sure your nervous system is going at the correct speed, exactly, which is quite fast, but apparently not that fast because like he hits it and then whoop, yeah, takes a second. Yeah, pretty amazing. John, I've, John, I I bought a thing, and it is is called 150 prompts, hmm. and it's a number of, and I'm gonna. I'm going to pull a prompt out and I'm going to ask you a question from this great thing. Okay. And here, here it is. I want uh, number 82. Well, they don't have numbers. Okay. So I'll, okay, I'll pull well, it from me. like 82-ish. Yeah. Around like halfway-ish, a little further than halfway. I don't know. What's a, what's 150 divided by two? A little less, a little further a little than more, halfway. Little, yep. Okay. What's the worst job you've ever had, John? I've had some stinkers. I'll be honest with you. The word- my, my first thought was CEO of VidCon. <laughs> Which is not, this is not a statement about VidCon or the people I worked with. It's just a very, it was a very hard job. I was, I, I, I had yeah. too many stakeholders, as they say. It is a, a hard thing to balance. It looked like a hard job. Like I would watch you at VidCon and think like, oh my God, that looks hard. (laughs) Events is just, events is very stressful because you're basing your entire business on how three days go. And you're expected to sleep during some of those three days. Yeah, no, it is a very weird business to have like 362 days of expenses and three (laughs) days of revenue. I hear you on that. The worst Uh, job I ever had probably was working at a warehouse and stacking stereo equipment, boxes full of stereo equipment into semi-trucks all day. Uh-huh. And the the work itself was fine, but 
it was in an unair conditioned Florida, yeah. Central Florida swampland mm-hmm. warehouse, and sticky. It was just very, very sticky in there. A sticky situation. And I felt so gross every day. Probably the worst job I ever had, like objectively, was mm-hmm. working the graveyard shift at Steak and Shake. Yeah, I I expected to hear Steak and Shake. That I remember that. Yeah, and I remember. Being actually like a little afraid for you. Yeah. I mean, I I will say not totally without reason. Yeah. Three o'clock in the morning in an Orlando steak and shake. It's not the best place I've ever hung out in my life. But look, I still eat steak and shake. I've worked at some restaurants I definitely would not go to again. I won't name them, but I've worked at some where I'm like, whenever we're like, you know, driving along the interstate and and they're like, well, what kind of fast food should we get? I'm always like, well, I'll tell you what kind of fast food we shouldn't get. But Steak and Shake. Oh, man, I love Steak and Shake. <laughs> steak and Shake is good food. I, I never had any questions about like the quality of the food or the, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, safety of the preparation. And as you know, Hank, I'm somebody who pays a lot of attention to yep. food preparation safety. It was just like the job sucked. Like the pay was really bad. People don't tip very well at three o'clock in the morning. Like it doesn't necessarily bring out the best in who you are. (laughs) You know, when you're going to Steak and Shake at three o'clock in the morning, that's not always your best self. Yeah. And then there was just a tremendous amount of vomiting in the bathroom. Yeah. If I had to say one thing about that job that really sucked, it would be that Every single shift, fluids. Someone vomited yeah. in the bathroom. Yeah, that was that was also my biggest complaint about working at Walmart, where where for some reason this was my responsibility a number of times, and it was never I never cleaned up puke, but I did clean up a, a, more than one other kind of bodily fluid. And I once I once um it's, I don't know if I can tell this story. No, but I once no no I know what it is. I've heard the story. You don't want to hear it. I don't think you should tell it. Okay. I don't want. First off, I don't. I, I personally don't want to hear it again. <laughs> <laughs> I find the story disgusting. <laughs> Secondly, I don't think our listeners need to hear it. I think we should move on to questions. In fact, so many of our listeners were so generous to write in wonderful questions. We're sitting here using 150 prompts from your prompt book. This first question comes from Coral, who writes, "Dear John and Hank, why are hats such a big deal? What I mean is." Hats have a lot of meaning in certain contexts, like removing a hat Mm -hmm. has a lot of meaning. For example, like at a funeral Mm -hmm. or church, you often remove your hat. People tip their hats. Is there something special about the tops of our heads? I'm very confused. Please help. Not a rock or a floral, coral. I once was having a conversation with my mother-in-law and she commented that her, that one of Catherine's old boyfriends wore his hat while sitting down at dinner at a restaurant. They like went out to Outback Steakhouse or something and yeah. he wore his baseball cap the whole time. Yeah. And that this was a big red flag for her. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I just lucked out that I know that that's a thing you care about. Because like never would I in a million years would I think I need to take my hat off at an Outback Steakhouse. It's a big deal to a lot of people. I think it's a it's a show of respect. Now we can like debate about why it's a show of respect or whether it it needs yeah. to be. But there's lots of cultural sure. shows of respect. Uh-huh. In fact, Tank, did you know that a lot of people believe that, you know, like the saluting in the army is a sort of version 
of tipping your hat or taking your hat off. Right. It's just like, so you were doing that, but then you didn't always have a hat. So you just sort of like made that signal. Yeah. And even though we no longer tend to like say uh, tip of the hat to you or whatever, we still do a version of this where we nod at strangers. And there's been a lot of sociological research into this. Like, why do we nod at each other in Mm -hmm. public spaces, especially people with whom we might share some affinity, like cyclists, for instance, tend to nod to other cyclists. And there's also been a lot of research into like when people nod upward Mm. and when they nod downward, Mm. like what those two kinds of nods might communicate. (laughs) But all of this, this is amazing. The hat tipping, the nodding, all of this is theorized by many to be a form of dealing with the problem of sharing physical space with strangers, sharing public space with people we don't actually know, Mm -hmm. which is a relatively recent phenomenon for humans, Mm -hmm. right? Like, was not an issue 7,000 years ago very often. And this is called civil inattention, which is maybe my favorite phrase of all time. (laughs) So civil inattention. John has got a question. Coral, John is so happy you asked. (laughs) (laughs) It's like I'm now I'm now gonna start answering an email because John John has a speech prepared. No, Hank, it's not that I have a speech prepared, but like this is this is so fascinating to me. And I, of course, like I know the reasons why it's fascinating to me. We could get into them if we want to go into therapy or whatever. But like <laughs> it is weird, right, that we go to the grocery store yeah. or we go to Target and it's full of people we don't know. Right. And we're able to navigate that, even though that's a relatively recent experience for humans. It's, and yeah. And do it's, this, it's super weird that we think it's weird when we see wh- someone we know. Yes. Right. Like that's the weird thing. Right. Where it's like, oh, I didn't expect to see a person I knew because, at a because, place where I live. Because that's the moment that civil inattention is broken. Mm. That's the moment where this thing that we all take for granted, which is that we can be anonymous in public spaces, oh, yeah. gets fractured. Oh. And yeah, so and I haven't had that in years. This nodding, this hat tipping behavior, this is all a way of dealing with the presence of strangers without having to like engage in conversations and make them not strangers anymore. Mm-hmm. And and then when we see someone we know in Target or whatever, the spell of civil inattention is broken. Mm-hmm. And wow. nobody ever explains- Public privacy. And nobody ever explains that like this public privacy is a really lovely, valuable thing that you force your entire family to give up if you become famous. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, as long as you're there with them. Yeah, it's def- it is definitely a uh, noticed phenomenon in, in the Green household here in Missoula, Montana. And oh, my God. I mean, going with Hank to any public <laughs> space in Missoula, Montana, it's the equivalent of like walking around town with Barack Obama <laughs> no, or it's, like it's being, not. being out with Justin Bieber. Like it's like every single person knows who he is. That is definitely not true, but it is it is not unlike walking around with the mayor of Missoula. Right. Like John Engen walks around town. People know who he is because it's a small enough town. Well, I guess people in most places know who the mayor is, but I, like it does feel a little bit like that, except that nobody's like, what's up with the potholes, Hank? So there's that <laughs> advantage. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is. It that is. It is a whole thing. I had. I had a fact for this one. Much l- like not nowhere near as deep as yours, which is just that hello, in 
sign language is like you put your hand at your head and, and move it up a little bit. So it's basically kind of the hmm. same signal. And I guess I like, I don't know, the top of the head, it's a part of our face that we don't do much with. And so it's like, let's just expand our face to to like a like extend it into the into the hat and let that be an emotive, uh, like an added emotive uh, tool. One thing that I think is completely undersold about human communication is the face. Oh, yeah. And so we have a lot of muscles in our body and they all connect to bones, except on our face. Now, this is not mm. entirely true. Like sphincters don't connect to bones. Your heart doesn't connect to bones. But like they're, 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 like facial muscles are special because they they are skeletal muscles that oftentimes go from Instead of from bone to bone, they go from bone to muscle or bone to skin. Mm. So they exist only to yank your skin around. And there's only one reason to have a bunch of muscles that exist that you have evolved to have in a very in an area of your body that's already very dense with nervous infrastructure. So it's like complicated to do this. You have a bunch of muscles that all they do is move your skin around. And part of this is like so that you can talk effectively. But, but a huge amount of it is so that you can exp- like communicate with people. Yeah, if you think about it, especially pre-language, yeah, we were entirely dependent upon those expressions, expressions with our faces, with our hands, with our bodies, yeah. Yeah, but then even after the emergence of language, so much of language is context dependent, right? Like yeah, so much of it is about my facial expression when I'm saying something, and this collapse of context is a huge part of what makes social interactions on the internet yeah. so complicated and charged. Now, it can also make them lovely. Like one of the big frustrations for me when I was a kid is that I could never I could never quite figure out how to communicate to my peers in a way that they understood me because I didn't have a great handle on all of those facial expressions and I didn't have a great handle on those mm-hmm. kind of like nonverbal cues. Oh, so much, so much data being passed. Yeah, exactly. But then when I went on the internet, when I was like 14 or 15, we were all just made out of keystrokes and that sort of leveled the playing field for me. And I felt like, well, here I can be understood and I can understand others in a way that I can't um, in real life. And and so I, I don't think it's all bad news, but that collapse of context in online communication is certainly very weird. And we've like built up tons of structures to try to deal with it, right? Like we have 5,000 emojis to try to do what facial expressions do. Uh, yeah. I. Um, what the hell are we talking about, though, John? Is this still the conversation about- We're talking about hat tips. We're on our first question, Why hats question, are Hank. serious? We, we got it. We got We, we, <laughs> we also didn't answer the question. Like, why are hats such a big deal? I still don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I just really wanted to talk about civil inattention. But I like Hank's theory that they're just a way of extending the face. John, this next question comes from Clemens, who asks, Dear Hank and John, when does one acquire a vase? Mm. (laughs) I moved out of my... This is the opposite of the problem I have. I moved out of my parents' house about a year ago, and recently I have been wondering, when do you get a vase? It isn't really an essential household item, but nonetheless, it feels like something that it would be useful to have if at some point someone brings me flowers. I would need a place to put them, right? So, do I just buy a vase? Not prepared to receive flowers, Clemens. Yeah, I feel like maybe... Maybe Hank and John should have a vase fire sale because- Yeah, you guys want some vases? (laughs) Over the last 17 years of being with Sarah, I feel like I went from zero vases to now too many vases. Yeah, at least 17. It's like you get one a year, we don't know how. I do remember though not having any vases and being, and, and I remember like putting flowers in like a 
20 ounce Sprite bottle. Right. Or yeah. putting flowers in like a large water glass or whatever, which by the way, works fine a lot of the time. God, a Sprite would be good. And can even be sort of cool in its own way. John, could you not mention Sprite uh, or any other sodas? Oh, I forgot you're not drinking soda. So I shouldn't mention not just its lemon-lime taste, but also the delicious bubbliness of it. I mean, one of the things I really admire about Sprite, and I don't want to get too deep into this, but no soda stream can ever no, capture it really the can't. full bubbliness. It, it very much can't. There's so many bubbles per square ounce. It's, yeah, I mean, like Sprite. It's funny. I've had a soda stream for like longer than anyone. I've no, that's not true. But yeah. I've had a soda stream no, for you were a like, very you were long like the time. third customer. I was I was an early adopter and I love it. But I don't like the the fine tunedness of the number and in like type of bubble that gets into a soda mm-hmm. is very it's it's remarkably specific oh, yeah. and difficult to duplicate. Now also oh, yeah. the thing is that like you have to fill it up one third with corn syrup to to really make it <laughs> feel mm-hmm. feel like a soda, right? Which is the main thing I'm trying to avoid. So, uh, yeah. But back to the question. I'm back sorry that question. you can't drink soda, Hank. And I won't. I won't mention <laughs> the incredible mouthfeel <laughs> of Sprite's astonishing carbonation ever again. But I, I feel like you don't need a vase or a vase, however you say it. Well, there's two different things, John. Because, oh God, are they really? Yeah. Well, a vase is what you get. When you like, when somebody gets you flowers and they like come in a vase. I think he's kidding. A vase. I think he's kidding. That's something that you go out and purchase. Okay. All right. You were kidding. I was was worried for a second. Yeah. So that's my feeling about it is that like the number one way that you get a vase is somebody like brings you a vase that has flowers in it Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Yeah. I think, I think, I think a vase is almost certainly carved crystal. Yeah, I don't know about that, but I, I I think like you can use things you already have in your house as a vase if somebody brings you flowers until you get a vase. Yeah. Because the thing is, once you get a vase, you're never getting rid of it. Well, this is the last time in your life when you're going to have that feeling of an unbearably light <laughs> life where you don't have a vase, right? And right. like, I, I think you should extend that period as long as you can. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and here's a way to get back to it. Now, if you end up with a bunch of vases, you have also ended up with a bunch of other stuff. So the, getting rid of the vases won't actually solve your problem. But I have a friend who owns a flower shop and Cliff and Lindsay, two friends who own a flower shop together. And they... Uh, their flower shop, and I think this is fairly standard practice, they will give you a discount on your flowers if you bring in a vase because they always need vases. Mm. Like They buy them constantly. So they give you like a dollar or two dollars off your, depending on the size of your vase, uh, if you bring one in and you can get flowers because they're going to have to buy those vases anyways. And this way, Mm. it's not like, they're not like making a bunch of new vases that they're just having to like send out and then people are like going to put them in their cabinet forever and not use them anymore. I love, thank you for that solution, Hank. Yeah. This next question comes from Sadie who writes, Dear John and Hank, a friend told me once that you should always rinse your hair with cold water because it will make your hair dry faster. Now, before we get to the heart of this question, Hank, which I, I genuinely don't know the answer to, Can I just point out the weird human phenomenon that when a friend tells you information that is weird or surprising, 
you remember it forever. Because I had a friend tell me in middle school that I should rinse my hair with cold water in order to make it less puffy. Mm. Like to Florida, Florida problems. A, I don't know if this is really a friend looking back on it. <laughs> I had a classmate tell me this. Yeah. And I believed them, but I have no idea whether this is true. Yeah. So. Sadie goes on to say, in my head, hair rinse in warm water should dry faster because the water is closer to boiling temperature. But admittedly, I don't really understand how evaporation works. At what temperature should I be washing my hair to ensure maximum drying efficiency? Sadie. Um, basically, it's not going to matter. Like the, the difference in evaporation, I can't imagine, will be significant. But it will definitely not be better if it's colder. You are correct. Warmer water evaporates more quickly, mm. but it's going to cool down very fast. Right. So it doesn't matter that much, but there's no there's no reason to make yourself uncomfortable with cold water if you can take a hot shower for the sake of your hair, is what you're yes, saying. Yes. The only reason to, to, to have your last... So there is a couple of reasons to take a cold shower. You save energy. Uh, and also, you just want to prove to yourself you can do it. And those are the only two. Oh, God. That's, a, that's such a huge thing in a certain... <laughs> In a certain like yeah. genre of podcast. I don't know how to describe oh. this genre of podcast except to say that it's about people who take cold showers and yeah. also seek other forms of like efficiency yeah. or their constructions of- Yeah, you know, uh, pro product productivity hustle. Productivity cult obsession. Culture. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. And I made a video about this way, way back in the history of Vlogbrothers. Uh, I think that I read a book called Flinch because of course like I- um, am constantly in a tug of war match between being a normal person and and uh being convinced being a productivity by, tech bro. by those people that I need to yep. be more productive not that uh yep. I feel like I could be honestly um but yeah and uh I did it one time and I was like that seems fine now I do like to jump into a cold body of water and I think that that should be done whenever possible and I don't mean like uh arctic or anything but I think that he, like anytime you can jump into a river or a lake and it's like acceptable and you're not going to get like itchies. Ah, yeah, it's good. I think that I we, sh we should do that more. I drive over way too many rivers I don't jump into. I spend way more time on rivers, I think, than the average person. Yep. And when I am on the White River, it, admittedly, it is one of the dirtiest rivers in America. But I rarely think to myself, oh, God, I wish I were just swimming in this. <laughs> I think there's a yeah. lot that you can do on rivers other than swim, swim in them. But it's yeah. nice. I will say, like, I like to wade. I, I, I think what you're actually saying is you like wading. No, I like I like to swim. Um, I do like to wade as well. When I was on this was this goes back to me being on tour and my two of my bandmates, Paul and Joe DeGeorge, uh, have have been in bands a lot and have toured around a lot. And they have a thing where they like to jump and get into a, a river whenever possible. Hmm. And Every time I didn't do that when we were on tour because I was cranky that morning or because I just like didn't want to go through the hassle of drying off or whatever, I look back on as a regret. Okay. But that's me. I, I'm just going to say, if you're jumping into rivers you don't know well, stay safe out there because <laughs> rivers, I'm not kidding. Rivers are no joke. They're, like, they're dirty and dangerous. Well, also like, yeah, I mean, know the current. Oh, yeah. You know, know the river. Oh, yeah. I agree I'm with a, you. I, Two things I worry about, Hank, food safety, water safety. It's because it's two ways I don't want to go. I don't want to go by yeah, poisoning. I, I don't want to have last words like Paul Claudel, who said, doctor, do you think it was the sausage? And I don't 
I do not want to go. Uh, I do not want to go on the water. Water is that's, very dangerous, no doubt about it. So just just know if if that's how I die, just know that I was pissed off about it. <laughs> I was like, oh god, I can't believe I talked about this on Dear Hank and John, and then it <laughs> happened. Crap, crap, crap. That's gonna be my last. It's thought. happening right now. Crap. I know this is happening, and I can't undo it. Yeah. Uh. That's going to be just 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 to give you a preview of my last thoughts. Should that be how I go? Let's keep with the questions about death. You got another one? Always. This next question comes from Kevin. He writes, Dear John and Hank, my wife and I were walking in a small town past a cemetery and I noticed a a property for lease sign on a building nearby. And then I thought to myself, what happens when a cemetery goes bankrupt? What do you do with all the like headstones and stuff? Oh, gosh, John. This does happen a lot. Are cemeteries private companies? Often, yes. Um, not always, but okay. often. They're often nonprofits now. I've got a friend who works um, at a cemetery and it's run by the county, I think. I'm, I, I know it's government. So yeah, sometimes it's owned by the government. Sometimes it's a nonprofit. Some of them are uh, for-profit <laughs> uh, enterprises or associated with for-profit enterprises because of funeral homes or whatever. I mean, it seems it seems like there there is a cap on the amount of money you can make. Like uh, Yes, a lot of times, though, part of the burial expense goes to like a forever fund oh, that ostensibly okay. pays for the forever upkeep of the cemetery and so on. Right. They have an endowment of some kind. Yeah. Wow. But but you're right. It does. There are 93 billion uh, dead people right now about. Yeah. And that number is likely to go up. <laughs> um <laughs> In the next 120 years, it's going to be eight billion higher. <laughs> Well, we don't know that, Hank, but it is probably going to go up. And yeah, as long as 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 long as there are are new humans being born and and humans dying, uh-huh. the, um, the, the there is a there is a long term structural problem, right? Maybe with the business model. Uh-huh. But it reminds me of something that John Maynard Keynes famously said when somebody pointed out that in the long run. In the very, very long run, there were some problems with his economic theories. And he said, well, in the long run, we're all dead. <laughs> so eventually, the way we will solve the cemetery problem is, is you know, the way that we're going to solve every every other can problem. I, can I can I make a suggestion and you can tell me it's terrible? Yeah. So I, at the moment, I am a, I don't need to be buried, just scatter my ashes at some place that I like. Right. But I could be swayed if this were the new idea. Okay. You assign me... A, a gravestone that's already taken, but by somebody who's been there for a long time. Mm. And then you say to me, okay, this this person, Jeffrey uh, Kalamazoo, mm-hmm. is dead yeah. and has been dead for 100 years. Yeah. Learn as much as you can about him because we're going to be... You, you, we're going to be putting a new gravestone up and it's going to say Hank Green and Jeffrey Kalamazoo and... You you will t- take up the same. You will take up a, a, a not a new spot. You'll share it. Yeah. But like at this point, Jeffrey Kalamazoo is just like dirt down there. And well, but it's also a way of potentially making a new generation of people who know about Jeffrey Kalamazoo. Exactly. So I'm just like, I will I will take some time to learn something about this person and know that like we shared this earth, mm-hmm. not at the same time. Yeah. But we shared this earth, and then. 120 years or 150 years from now, somebody will get buried there and it'll be like Hank Green, Jeffrey Kalamazoo, and Alice Snyder. And we'll all be in there together. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's kind of a lovely idea. I, I I would support that. I mean, not for myself. For myself, I want to be at the very top of Crown Hill Cemetery <laughs> above 
<laughs> in, a, in, a, in a construction that is built on top of whatever right. vice president is up there. For context, uh, Crown Hill Cemetery is this big cemetery in Indianapolis. It's the biggest cemetery in Indianapolis, one of the biggest in the world. And it, it actually does have a hill, which is a miracle for Indianapolis. And at the top of the hill, which is the tallest point in the city, is the last and final resting place of James Whitcomb Riley, who was a, a children's author. And I want to be buried on top of him. I, I don't know I want, how that's going to work. There's a they, they've built a beautiful like uh, sculpture at his last and final resting place, and I would like them to build a structure that goes on top of the top of Crown Hill, <laughs> directly above. Right. The is this asking too much of the world? Probably. And then that is where I would that is where I would like yeah. to be buried. So what you're saying is the exact same idea as me. Except yeah. that you like a skyscraper. Uh, yes, and I and to be clear, I would, <laughs> all so I'm asking for more is people buried on top of you forever. I'm just asking for one city block, okay? Just one <laughs> city block where the only thing is my remains. Which reminds and, me, uh, John, that this podcast is brought to you by your gross ostentatious tomb. <laughs> John Green's gross ostentatious tomb coming to you in. Ow, 50 years. Oh, God, please. I don't actually like I don't actually want a gross ostentatious tomb, but I also c- kind of do. And <laughs> this is the thing. This is like me and the productivity podcasts. Yeah. So I would like my tomb to somehow reflect this ambivalence that I feel. Right. Just, okay. just like I want my future I, NFTs to reflect my ambivalence. Oh, about God. Oh, no, 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 no. You're. I mean, there's only one thing more more embarrassing than part of you kind of wanting a big tomb, and that is part of you kind of wanting to be involved in the NFT Any, business. With anything to do with NFTs. <laughs> I agree. Just when I thought I'd achieved, like, max cringe, along comes Hank. Okay, here's the situation. I'm not going to get buried, but you can buy the NFT of my dead body. Oh God! Oh God! It's yeah. It's and there's only one of them. There's you know? only one of them. There's only one of them. So Look, it it's basically be more me putting your name into a spreadsheet, but we're gonna charge two hundred thousand dollars for it. And you are you are gonna get a thirteen character code that makes it clear that you own the idea of Hank's tomb. Today's podcast also, of course, brought to you by Civil Inattention. Civil Inattention, obviously a rant John wanted to go on. <laughs> that is exactly the one I was going to use if I did that one. Um, <laughs> that was the, the very words I was about to say. This podcast is also brought to you by my Walmart story. I wanted to tell it, but nobody wanted to hear it. Yoinks. And today's podcast is also, of course, brought to you by a vase. A vase. Not a vase. This episode of Dear Hang John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Trobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt, 
I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. All right, John, I have another question. It's from Tommy who asks, dear Hank and John, and I, I think this one's for you, but we'll see. My girlfriend and I decided to break up a couple months ago, but we have stayed very close friends since. We talk to each other about how our days are going and what is going on at work or school and what's gotten us feeling down. She's she's the only friend I feel comfortable talking about my feelings with, but I can't talk about everything with her, for instance, when I'm feeling sad because I'm missing her. I don't have anybody else to talk about this sort of personal stuff with. What should I do in this kind of situation? Is this something a therapist could help with? Dubious advice is greatly appreciated. Tacos and tortillas. Tommy. I do think it's something a therapist could probably help with, but I also think that a lot of us, I know this was the case for me when I was younger. I had the expectation that one person, typically Mm -hmm. my romantic partner, Mm -hmm. would be the only person I confided in. Yes. And that there was also almost something that was disrespectful to the relationship Mm -hmm. to, to confide in anyone else. Wow. Yeah. And that is too much for any person to hold. I think. Well, yeah, I mean, like I think I think it is possible, but I d- certainly don't think it's ideal or expected or yeah or or and, well, and like just, that, that thing that you said about how like I almost felt like it was a betrayal to share my emotions with someone who was not my partner. Yeah, that is so important. Like that is an idea, and I don't know where we got it, but we got it, and we need to unget it. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure to put on one other person, and it's especially a lot of pressure to put on one other person when you're both trying to navigate what life looks like for both of you after the end of a romantic relationship. And I mean, I've been in that situation before. I've been in a very similar situation, and I don't think that there's an overnight solution. I don't think you wake up tomorrow with, with the solution. I think that it's a long-term process solution, but we all we all need to be able to confide aspects of our lives to more than one person, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, or, or at least I do. I don't know if we all do. I do. Yeah. And that's work. Like it's work to build those relationships, but one thing I found was when I started to try to do the work, there were actually already people in my life who were excited to be close to me and who did care about me, and who I just hadn't been confiding in because it felt wrong or it, or, or, or it, it, I felt uncomfortable with the idea. And then slowly, as I began to do that, I became a better friend. Mm-hmm. And I also became a better romantic partner in a lot of ways because I was putting less pressure on 
on that one relationship mm-hmm. to provide for all of my emotional needs. Yeah. And I mean, I think there are certainly situations where that we can find ourselves in where we don't have people who seem excited to take on that role. And yeah, and like that may be a situation where therapy is uh, like, like helpful in that one way. There are other ways that therapy will probably also be helpful, but it also may take some time. But thinking about establishing relationships where, and I have a hard time with this, um, where like outside of my family, where I feel I can be supported uh, and and I can sort of like, you know, talk about the real hard stuff uh, has has been a lot of work for me. It's been an, it's been a a process of unlearning things, and uh, and and also a process of like, I guess I, I guess part of like the unlearning is unlearning like shame, unlearning shame about like feeling overwhelmed or not or feeling like I can't do something or being unsure or like all these things that I was kind of have been told to not feel or that I you know if I am feeling them I should ignore that or something. Yeah, absolutely, and. I mean, this is a joke, but it's a joke with a point. I, I've, I've, I've talked about this before on the Anthropocene Reviewed, but when I was in college, my college girlfriend asked me what my biggest fear was, and I said abandonment. Mm. And then she was just really quiet because that's a lot. That's a lot to hold. Um, <laughs> and then, and then to fill the awkward silence, I said, "Well, well what is your biggest fear?" And she said, "Geese." <laughs> and I realized that I had, I'd, I'd missed the mark on my answer. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, now looking back on it, I needed to do something about my fear of abandonment. And that and that solution wasn't to find one person who was never going to abandon me. The solution was to build a, a broader network. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a long term diversify yeah diversify yeah. my identity diversify my relationships and that's not to say like i have foundational relationships in my life and if they ended it would be devastating oh yeah and i i don't want to minimize that in any way like there's no there's no getting around that mm-hmm. right like part of being a person is being profoundly reliant upon and dependent upon yeah. other people mm-hmm. and and you know if, if for whatever reason those foundational relationships ended, whether that's my relationship with you or my relationship with my spouse or my relationship with my best friends, it would, it would be awful, Mm -hmm. awful, Mm -hmm. brutal, you know, but I think part of the reason I'm able now to be a better brother and a better spouse than I was able to be 10 or 20 or 25 years ago is because I have worked hard to try to you know, build out some of those relationships so that there isn't only one person that I can confide in. Because I think that's a, for a lot of people, that's, that's just a lot to hold, you know, it's just a lot to try to carry around all the time. Yeah. And so that's the work that I would encourage you to do, but it's very, very long-term work. And so in the short term, I would encourage you to definitely talk to somebody, like reach out to a therapist. Because come to think of it, one thing I really love about my therapist is that I can confide in her and I can like have absolute trust in that confidence. Like she literally can't say what I tell her, you know, like she's not allowed to, Yeah, uh, she's not allowed to gossip about me. Uh-huh. Uh, and I really, uh, I, I do really value that. John, we got one last question before we get to the all important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. It's from I'm Sam. I'm 
so excited about the news from AFC Wimbledon, by the oh, way. Well, then me this too. Is like, we have the best news from AFC Wimbledon coming. But what is our last question? It's from Sam who asks, Dear Hank and John, I was studying for an ecology midterm when a question struck me. Why are there no spicy animals? Mm. I understand that plants use capsaicin to make themselves spicy to prevent predation and that some animals evolved to be poisonous to other animals. But why didn't animals become spicy to keep predators away? Or, or... Are there just a bunch of spicy animals out there and we haven't found them yet? I can look. Can I look forward to eating a naturally spicy insect for dinner someday? Best, Sam. Sam, you can look forward to eating a naturally spicy insect right now if you want to, because any uh, stinging ant is spicy because they have formic acid in them. Really? And uh, and in fact, the, there are people who make fire ant chutney for this reason. Oh. For the flavor, that the spicy flavor that the ants add. But you can't have like a spicy mammal. Like meat is is meat, you know? Yeah. Yeah, uh, no, I agree. Yeah. But I, I, I'm i not really interested in pursuing uh, m- more meat in the future anyway. Yeah. But I am, and I hope the ants won't take this personally, I am interested in pursuing potentially some insect-based protein. So yeah. I'm enthusiastic about the prospect of some spicy ant burgers. <laughs> and here's the situation. If we start making uh, meat from scratch, which, you know, we're starting to do, and I expect, you know, by the time I'm heading on out, that uh, there won't be a lot of meat getting eaten anymore. That's my hope anyway. Uh, at least not sort of like a meat that was created by an actual living animal that uh, we maybe we could just make it spicy. We can do whatever we want. We're making it. Yeah. We can just grow it spicy. Though at the same time, you could also just like put some hot sauce on it. So there is that. Why? why yeah, you could mix it up. Yeah. Do it however you want to do it. Great. All right. Let's move <laughs> on to the news from AFC Wimbledon. Hank, AFC Wimbledon ha- have been in the relegation zone since forever yep. ago. Uh huh. And every season, for the last three seasons, somehow AFC Wimbledon in the narrowest possible margin escapes yeah. relegation yeah, you, and remains a third tier English soccer team it happens it's, it it happens so routinely that i've started to believe that it's natural uh-huh but of course it isn't and if you flirt with relegation yeah. enough uh-huh. you will eventually be relegated yep and when afc wimbledon were playing this weekend i was watching the game on my iFollow app and we were playing accrington stanley they scored a goal And my heart sunk, and I looked at the table, and I realized we were in second to last place, and I was like, you know what? It's going to happen. Yeah. And I have to accept it, and it sucks, but it's going to happen. It's the, the, The die is cast. Sure. And then we scored five goals. Five <laughs> goals. We scored five goals. We won the game 5-1. And now our goal difference is better than any of the teams around us. Oh, because right, because that matters. Five goals. And 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 suddenly we are not in the relegation zone for the first time in five months because we scored five goals. Ollie Palmer, you might remember him, Hank, as the guy that I hyped up early in the season as uh-huh. uh, finally we have a a, a a big, big striker again. Yeah. Well, he was hurt for most of the season. He's back. He scored two goals. Ayuba Saul, who's a very, very small person, and that is the ideal Wimbledon strike team. He's a bit of a central attacking midfielder, but that's the ideal Wimbledon strike team. A giant like Ali Palmer and a smaller person like Ayuba Saul. Ayuba Saul, who like, like 
six months ago was playing in the seventh tier of English football. <laughs> Ayuba Saul scored two goals. He's 19 years old. He's amazing. I love everything about him. When he was asked if he was satisfied with his performance, he said, I won't be satisfied until I'm the best soccer player in the world. It was amazing. <laughs> How did we score all these? We haven't scored, we haven't scored five goals since 2011 was the last time we scored five goals away from home. We weren't even in the football league the last time we scored five goals away from home. We beat Acting Stanley 5-1. We're out of the relegation zone. There's there's uh, seven games left for Wimbledon. I think we need to win three of those games. Ooh, ooh. We scored five goals. We, I, I, so there is hope. There is real, real hope. I cannot believe it. I, I just gotta, we gotta win we gotta win three of seven games though uh, potentially it's hard to know right it depends on how many of the other teams win but I would I think if we win three we should be safe yeah so Hank over at the Nerdfighter subreddit there was a post about this and there were so many wonderful comments um, one person said I'm afraid they've used up all their goals for April in just one game <laughs> yeah um, that's my worry one person pointed out that it was the first time that Wimbledon have won a game by more than one goal in. 18 months. Uh, one person said, this club has consistently made me feel like we're living in a movie and they're the main characters. <laughs> and that's so true. Like, how do they do it year after? Oh my God. I, so obviously there's a long way to go, but hope, hope, hope. What's the news from Mars? Well, it's less good. So it's been like a, just a string of great news from Mars, but now we've got a little hiccup. We don't know. I, I, even saying it that way makes me is it making you more worried than you should be. But no, no. ingenuity, the helicopter has been delayed, oh. and we're not entirely sure why. Oh. So uh, it was pushed back to no earlier than April 14th. Okay. So again, that's before this podcast comes out. So maybe this has all resolved itself in the meantime. Did they say why? They did say why, but it didn't. It didn't mean anything. Mm. They basically said uh, we ran a test to uh, get the blades to reach 2,400 revolutions per minute, which is uh, below the speed at which it would actually take off. So just like get the get the things moving. Uh, and during the test, a thing happened. Mm. Like the, the like what the what the press release said, you know, means nothing to me. A thing happened that basically told it to stop. Hmm. And we're not sure. And so now like the engineers have to go through and figure out exactly what of the 400 different reasons why it would be told to stop it. Hmm. stopped so who knows what that means it could just mean that like it took a little longer to speed up than they were expecting it to and and so like things weren't exactly as predicted and they will know that and they will you know use that data to you know change something slightly and and it'll take off immediately but it's blades did move it spin it spun its little blades okay so um, so it can spin uh, it, it's uh past past all of its other tests it's surviving the nighttime which is a concern because it's quite cold right um and it's using its power to to survive the night times so so far so good uh but not exactly as good as we were hoping we we were hoping that by now i would have to, i would be telling you about a helicopter that had flown on mars but yeah not quite yet okay well, we'll we will keep our fingers crossed, and indeed, as as we must for AFC Wimbledon as well. There was another comment on that subreddit, Hank, and I thought it was really good, and it reflects both this podcast and the community at large. Anyone who stumbles upon 
this subreddit would be so confused. Like, is it a subreddit about third tier English football or is it a subreddit about Mars or about pelicans? What's going on here? <laughs> and indeed, what is going on here? But I'm very grateful yeah. uh, to learn about pelicans and Mars and third tier English football with you, Hank. And uh, thanks for potting with me. All right. Thank you, John. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tuna Menish. It's produced by Rosiana Hulse Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our communications coordinator is Julia Bloom. Our editorial assistant is Deboki Trakravarti. The music you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be, be awesome. awesome.